church. God places such value on it. And in fact, today we're going to talk about that, uh, that Jesus is the foundation, but we are the building that's built upon that foundation. And so it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. I don't know how we come up in our culture, how we've drifted to an apathetic view, uh, a take-it-or-leave-it view of the church. When every time God describes the church, it's in this place of honor. And it's a wonderful thing. And in fact, uh, Ephesians says that he's going to present to himself the church as a glorious church. And if you just consider what that means, that, that he would say, of course, we have some, some washing to do, some cleansing to do, but that we're going to be glorious. Just that, that word. Glorious is the word that God uses to describe himself. It's what it's, God uses to describe his mighty hand, his majesty. Glorious is the word that God uses to describe his word. And it's the word that he chooses to use to describe us, the church. Glorious is the word that he uses to describe God's work in Psalm 111. It's the word he uses to describe Jerusalem. We know how important that central location is. It's the word described to use, the, uh, use to describe the gospel. Glorious. It's the same word that God uses to describe us, the local church. It's a, it's a place of, of honor. In fact, I want to show you on the screen one of the, uh, one of the premier promises that God makes about the church, and specifically uh, what Jesus says. He says uh, to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. That's awesome. God's going to build his church. Jesus says himself, I'm going to build this church, and the second part of that promise is, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Those are wonderful promises, and they're unique to the church. God hasn't promised to build other things. He's promised to build the church, and he hasn't promised to protect everything from the gates of hell and give give everything victory over, but the church he has. So it's a, it's a glorious and wonderful position that we hold. And so today we're going to talk about that the church is a building. And the, the, one of the verses that I want you to see, and we'll just start off with this, is 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9. He actually, in this, gives us a couple of the metaphors. I'm sure uh, in the next session we'll look at the next one, uh, that, that we are God's husbandry. But he says we're laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. And for us right now, it says ye are God's building. The church is a building. Now, I, didn't, I don't mean that to say that this building is a church. Sometimes we use our terminology that way. I'm, I left my Bible at church, and we usually mean the building, the, the brick-and-mortar structure, or we say, I'm going to church. What time are you going to church? And we're talking about a location, a physical building, but here uh, we're, we're talking about the body of believers, the people, the saints, the flock, the family is a building. That's the way God describes us, and so I want us to see today what the implications are for that, and first we're going to start off in your notes, as always, we're going to start out with what we're called to be, because we are God's building, we are called to be a house. We are a house, not just a, a building of anything else, but, but a house in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, if you'll remember the context, it, earlier in chapter 3, we talked about it yesterday, um, it starts off with, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. And he goes through the requirements for who a bishop or a pastor needs to be in order to be ordained as that. And, and then it goes through the requirements for a deacon. And as he finishes that list, he says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church 
of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So we see that we have this esteemed position again that the church is a building, and not just any building. We are the house of God. Collectively, First Baptist Church comprises a house for God, a house of God. It's the church of the living God. And so I want us to see a few things about the significance of this house and who we are called to be. And the first one, letter A in your notes, is we're built on the foundation of Jesus. We're built on the foundation of Jesus. Back in that 1 Corinthians 3 passage where we were, verse 9 is up on the screen, and it says that ye are God's building, and he skips down to verse 11, and he's talking about the foundations. He says, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church, and we are the building that's built upon it, but it all starts with the foundation, right? It, you, should, you can't have a, a stable building without a foundation. And the church is built upon the most stable of all foundations. There's no other foundation other than Jesus Christ. And so I want us to turn to Ephesians chapter 2 to see maybe a, a little more complete area. We'll see this passage throughout today. Uh, but Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. Because when he says he's built upon the, the foundation of Jesus... It's, uh, it's not just, um, you know, what Jesus did in the gospel, that he came to earth, lived a sinless life, died, was buried, rose again the third day. It's not just on his person, but also on his word. Because we see this in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. And he's talking about the church, and he says, "...ye are built up on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets." Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The, the apostles and prophets are or a, a nice way to say the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's, it's the words of God. It's the foundation, not just the person of Jesus, but even the mind of Jesus, the word of God. The church is built upon him. And it, that, the verse that he's quoting there and he's alluding to, let me I'll bring it up on the screen. It's Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16. You'll probably recognize this verse. Uh, it's used several times in the New Testament. It says, uh, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone. What kind of stone? A tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. And you could track that all the way back even before this to uh, Genesis chapter 49. When, uh, ja when Jacob stands before his sons and, and one, as he's giving them prophecies, he's talking about Je Jesus and he calls him the shepherd of Israel and the stone of Israel. Jesus is the foundation and he's the stone, that tried stone, that precious cornerstone. The cornerstone was that s the biggest part of the foundation and they would put a, a large stone there in the corner that would become the foundation for it and that's who Jesus is to the church. He is the foundation, and the apostles and the prophets, are, they're, they're part of that foundation that the church is built upon. Matthew 21, 42. Jesus says uh, unto them, did you never read the scriptures? That's, what, that's kind of a convicting uh, statement to religious leaders who were supposed to be so uh, informed and knowledgeable about the scriptures. And did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting uh, Psalms, and he, it's even referred to in Acts chapter 4 as Peter is preaching to the religious leaders there. Uh, 
But Jesus is that stone. He is that precious stone that the builders rejected. But he's become the head of the corner. He's become the foundation for the church. And Jesus is the foundation. That's important for us to get. And we talked a little bit about it yesterday and the importance of God's word. But when we talk about the church being built up, it's, it's imperative that the church is built on the foundation of Jesus. And not just the person of Jesus, and that's, that's a big part of it, but the entirety of the mind of Christ, the word of God. It's important that the church is built on the foundation of Scripture, that everything that we do is defined by Scripture. We often say that the, the word of God is our authority in all matters of faith and practice, right? That's, that's a good saying, but that means that everything that we believe is derived from this book, and everything that we practice the way that we function as a church, the way that we're going to set up our, our church polity or the way that we're going to set up our church ministries, how we're going to treat each other, how we're going to use church funds, everything is derived from the book, from the foundation of Jesus Christ. And if you notice in that verse, uh, it's talking about that the builders rejected that stone. In the first century, they rejected the cornerstone. They rejected Jesus Christ. They sought to build their own religion. They wanted to be in control themselves. And now in the 21st century, we find human nature hasn't changed a whole lot. And people reject the foundation of God's word because they have their own religion that they want to preserve. They want to keep control or they like things the way they are. And so we find that pre, um, tradition or we find that our own preferences, we talked a little bit about that yet. yesterday. We talked about uh, culturalism, you know, making sure that this society is okay that we're making our church fit with the views of our society, or pragmatism, you know, one of the ways that uh, people define their church now is just what, what seems to be working, and we'll look at the, the best practices of the fastest growing churches in America. H how are they doing it? They must be doing it right because they're having people show up, or they've got a large number of people professing Christ or being baptized, and praise the Lord, I'm not here to, to knock anybody. I'm saying for us as church, as a local church, we have to define everything and build the church upon the authority of Scripture. It must be built upon the right foundation. When we think about that, I don't know about you, my mind immediately goes back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and the way he concludes it. You know, he, he tells this story about two builders, Right? One was a wise man and one was a foolish man. And they each built a house. And the, the verses are on the screen. I know this is a familiar song story to you. You could probably sing the song from Sunday school, right? The wise man built his house upon the... Yeah, a couple of you know the song. Praise the Lord. And the rains came tumbling down, right? Well, that's what uh, we're going to read. Verse 24 says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, they're, they're the sayings of Jesus. This is what's going to form the foundation for this person. But not just heareth them and doeth them. Because we find that the foolish man, he actually hears the same words. He hears the sayings. He knows what the word of God says. He just doesn't do it. It doesn't seem practical or it doesn't seem like it's going to be effective or it's causing too much trouble in his church. So he doesn't build it that way. But the wise man heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them. I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. He's talking about building a house. And he had a right foundation. It was built upon the rock. And it goes on and he says, the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house. And it fell not. For it was founded upon a rock. 
Be sure about this. Be certain. In the certainty conference, you can be certain about this. The rains are going to come, and the floods are going to come. To any local church, there will be times of storm. And it depends on, the outcome depends on what you build your house upon. And if you decide, you know, the, the best practices of the largest churches or the fastest growing churches or the celebrity pastors or the best books and authors or, or what schools are telling me to do, that's the way I'm going to build my church, then the, the storm is going to come. And you're going to find you'll be like verse 27 on the screen. The rain, this, uh, this foolish man who built a house. He said, the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house. And it fell. And great was the fall of it. See, the issue is, are we built on the right foundation? Everything else that we're going to talk about building a church, it doesn't matter if we don't get the foundation right. You can use the best materials, you can use the best building structures, and, and you can make it look as nice as you want on the inside, but if you don't have a foundation, it's going to fall, and great will be the fall of it. In our churches, we see this happen many times. And you know, church, the thing about church experts, church growth experts, or these best practices, man, they change all the time, don't they? Even in my short experience in ministry, I see flip-flops. Oh, you should do this. Oh, don't wait. Five years later, don't do that. Instead, do this. We need a solid foundation that's going to be sure, something that you know is true, not the opinions of man, but the Word of God. So it needs to be built upon the foundation of Jesus. The second point, point B, is it needs to be built or it is designed to be built as a habitation of God. Back in our text, um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21 said, In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also, that's y'all, remember, y'all, ye also are builded together. For what purpose? For an habitation of God through the Spirit. The church is not only called the house of God in general, and we maybe if it was just called the house of God, we, we might miss some of what God's trying to teach us here, but he says that we grow to a, a holy temple in the Lord. In fact, every if you go back in the Old Testament, I think this is in your notes, and you can look it up later, every Old Testament use of the word building as a noun, not the verb of, you know, Noah is building an ark, but as a noun, a structure, a building, it always refers to the temple whether that's uh, the one in Solomon's day or in Zerubbabel, Ezra's day or in uh, Ezekiel's prophecy. It all deals with the temple. The building is the temple, and that's who God says that we are. We're a building. We're a house of God. We're, we're the temple. And it reminds us of the significance of the church. Think back to that Old Testament. And think when, when God said, hey, I want you to build a tabernacle, or later they built a temple, what that meant. That was the center of worship. It wasn't like you can go to the temple or, or you could just do your own thing over here. It was exclusive. It was a reverent place. And God was so serious about what, what it would be made of. It was so serious about how it would be laid out. He was so serious about what would happen inside of it. That he would place these sacred pictures, types, figures into this temple to represent something, and now we get to the New Testament, and God says, that's who the local church is. We're a temple. And just as important and just as honored and reverent the temple was in the Old Testament, that's how he sees the temple in the New Testament. Because it's a habitation of God. It's a place where God can live. 
and dwell. That's beautiful. Psalm chapter 93, it's not on the screen. It just says this, holiness becometh thy house, O Lord. You know what becomes the house of God? You know what's fitting for the house of God? Holiness. And we ought to strive to make sure that our church is holy. The context of uh, 1 Corinthians 3, where it says that you are God's building, and then he says that it's built upon the foundation of Jesus. No other, there's no other foundation than Jesus. The con- that's the context, but when it gets down to verse 16 and 17, we'll get some time to look at these maybe in a moment. But it says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. As a habitation of God, it, it demands us to live in holiness. It demands that we think about our, our corporate gatherings and make sure that everything is done to the glory of God and everything is reverent and honoring to the Lord. And I don't mean that we have to have a high church and you know rituals and have this liturgy. What I'm saying is it has to be honoring to the Lord. It needs to be holy. It needs to be reverent. It needs to be thought through and not flippant. When Jesus walks into the, the temple and he sees them making merchandise in there and he casts them out he says man my house was intended to be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves we got to be careful the way we treat god's temple so he replaces himself all the time right so jesus had a body he replaced himself with a body jesus is the son of god he replaced himself with sons of god jesus is the lamb of god he replaced himself with sheep the flock Jesus is the stone of Israel. He replaces himself with stones. And Jesus is a temple. Did you know that? Jesus is a temple? That's that's what he said in John chapter 2. In verse 19, he would be later misquoted when he was tried. But, But he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, forty and six years was this temple in building. Wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. So Jesus was a temple when he was here. He was a habitation for God. And he replaced himself with a temple, the local church, the church. We are the temple. But we're different than these other temples because, um, you know, as beautiful as Solomon's temple was, it was just made of dead stones. And and as beautiful as um, the temple was when it was rebuilt under Zerubbabel, still just dead material. We see here in 1 Peter chapter 2, in verses 5 through 7, that we're unique because we're not made of dead stones. It says, this is a living temple. He says, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, also it is contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. He tells us that we are lively stones, that we're alive. We're different than every other building, than every other temple. We're not made of dead materials. We are the church of the living God, he says. So we are lively stones, making up a spiritual house. 
because God's a living God and he lives within us. Psalm 115, I love it. He goes through comparing, uh, comparing the, uh, the, de- the dead idols and the living God. He says that the living God has mouth. He speaks. He even preserves his word for us. He says that the, the living God has eyes, unlike those idols. He has eyes. He sees your needs. He sees your affliction. He sees your victories. He sees your sin. He has ears, so he hears your prayers. He hears your thanks. He hears your praises. He hears your needs. He says those idols, they, don't, they have noses. They can't smell. But Jesus smells the incense of our prayer and the sacrifice of our worship. He smells our giving. They're a sweet-smelling savor to him. He's a living God. He has hands, and he upholds us when we're weak. He leads us. He picks us up. He embraces us. He's a living God, and we are called to be a living temple, to, to be a spiritual house habitation of God. And he says in our text, or in the, our verse on the screen, 1 Peter 2, that we're to offer spiritual sacrifices. So in your notes, you have a list of them. We're not going to take time to go through looking at all the references. But these are examples of sacrifices that we can offer to the Lord. As a church, we are his temple, and we are supposed to offer spiritual sacrifices like praise and giving of thanks. Did you know when when they have times of music where we praise the Lord through music, you ought to sing. And some people say, well, I'm just not that good of a singer. I have a close friend that said somebody didn't like their singing voice. And they said, wow, you're kind of tone deaf. And she responded and said, I'm singing for Jesus, not for you. And he loves my voice. And she's absolutely right. He's the one who gave her that voice. And just as if you don't think it's beautiful, he does. And he wants for you to sing to him, whether you think it's good or not. He wants for you to give thanks. And that's a, that's a way that you offer a sacrifice to him, a spiritual offering. By giving, he expects us to give. And he wants us to give. They gave in the Old Testament temple. He wants you to give now. In fact, he says, when you give, it's a sacrifice. And he takes pleasure in that. This Churches ought to be places where the rest of the world, as selfish as we are, and we want to buy things for ourselves, and we like to consume, and we usually spend more than we even make. The church is unique in that we give because we have God's nature inside of us. Faith, in Philippians chapter 2, it's a spiritual sacrifice. And it's so hard to just trust the Lord that He's going to take care of things. But when you do, when you, when you live by faith, when you step out, when you don't see all the answers, when it looks like the circumstances aren't going to work out, but you hold true to what God said, it's a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord. Loving one another, he says, is a sacrifice that's well-pleasing to God. And then finally, offering our bodies to the Lord is living sacrifices. It's, those are ways that we can offer sacrifices to the Lord. And, and by the way, in the last one that's in your notes, it, it, that's reasonable. There's nothing unreasonable about that, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. So as the house of God, as a, as a holy temple, the local church is the habitation of God. It's the place of God's presence, and it's the place of God's power. Just think about that. I mean, how wonderful and how sacred that Old Testament temple was, that God would choose to inhabit our presence together, this building of a local church. In the Old Testament, we see God is rigid, um, um, austere, even demanding. 
concerning his temple. The importance, uh, the importance and seriousness, the intentionality of the local church. He's not playing around. There's, there's no substitute for the local church. There's no misusing the local church. It's God's temple. So everything ought to be honoring to him. Not honoring to ourselves. Not honoring to just tradition or preferences. Everything ought to be reverent. And I'm not talking about a facility. I'm talking about the church. All right, so see, we see that the, the church is, is built upon the foundation of Jesus. It's built as a habitation for God. And it's built with the unification of the Spirit. And that's what we see in Ephesians chapter 2 again. Verse 21 says, In whom all the building fitly framed together. You see that? Where the, all, all the building is framed together. It groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also ye also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. That's, you know how that happened? You know how we were builded together? You know, it all happened, uh, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it happened by one Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit. By one Spirit, you're all baptized into one body, the, local, the church. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, we've been all made to drink into one Spirit. It was that Holy Spirit that creates the unity that we have as a church. The fact of the building built upon the foundation of Jesus, it, we talked about this a, a couple days ago, that it's, made, it's used to convey the idea of Jews and Gentiles being in one body. right? The unity that comes in the local church. That were, for millennia, the, the Jews and Gentiles were separate and, and even opposed to each other. But now he's brought us together and there should be unity up on the screen is Ephesians 4. I figure we need to go through this like every day, Ephesians 4. By the time we leave, you, you will have this branded into your mind and you'll have nightmares about me reading this verse. Uh, Ephesians 4.11 says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why did he give them? For the perfecting of the saints. And, and why perfect the saints? For the work of the ministry. And, and, and why do saints do the work of the ministry? for the edifying of the body of Christ. And then he says, till we all come in the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So God gave pastors to perfect the saints. And then when the saints are perfected, they do the work of the ministry. And when they do the work of the ministry, the, the body is built up. And what happens when the body is built up? When people are growing in the Lord, there's a unity. We all come in the unity until we all come in. The, we just keep growing until we are builded together to where we're united. And we looked at before how that all of the churches in the New Testament struggled with unity. But probably the one that struggled the most was the church at Corinth. I mean, Paul can't get out of the first chapter before he's addressing divisions in their church. And all throughout, he continues to reference those divisions. And by the time we get to chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 18 and 19, he says, for first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you. And I partly believe it. I, it's hard for me to believe that he only partly believes that. <laughs> Considering all the things that he's been told and the things that he's referencing and the instruction that he's giving, he says, I partly believe that. Then he goes on and says, For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. 
It's interesting that in this church, you know, we see a lot of divisions that deal just with preference or tradition, but this church was even divided on doctrine. There were heresies among them that were causing division. Why were there heresies? Well, we're going to look and see in just a moment that the reason why there were heresies is because there was no discipleship going on. People weren't growing up in the faith, and they weren't being perfected, and so there was no unity of the faith. We'll, we'll see that in, in a moment, but I, I do want you to notice that Paul says there must be heresies among you so that those that are approved may be made manifest. And do you know that there must be heresies in the church today for the purpose of manifesting who's approved? Who is it that's approved? The 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us who's approved. You study to show yourself approved unto God. And how do you do that? You, uh, you do the work of a workman, and you rightly divide the word of truth. And those people are approved of God, and they're made manifest when heresies come along. And people, dis maybe it's Calvinism, or maybe it's spiritual gifts, or maybe it's losing your salvation, or whatever it is, and issues come up, and people say, oh, well, I, I, don't, I don't know, that sounds right. And somebody who's approved, who's studied, and rightly divides the word of truth, says, let me show you what the Bible says about this. And that guy is now made manifest. right? But that's not what was going on in this church because people weren't being developed. People weren't being perfected. And so those doctrines began to cause divisions among them. And so it leads us into our next, uh, our next part, number two, Roman numeral number two. It's what we're called to do. We're called to edify. That word edify comes from the word edifice, which just means a building. So it means edify means to build up. Just as Jesus Christ promises to build his church, he calls us to build each other. And this, this local church is a supernatural building. Not only is it made of lively stones, but it also grows in the Lord. And so the key word, if you notice at the top of your first page, the key word for today is discipleship. Being a building means that we need to edify one another. We need to grow. And so referencing back, we looked at Ephesians chapter 4, a few of the verses there, till we all, ended with, till we all grow, uh, come into the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God and to a perfect man and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then verse 14 says that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, because that's what happens with spiritual children. They get carried away with every wind of doctrine. They get tossed to and fro. When somebody comes in teaching something, whether it's the prosperity gospel or anything else, people, oh, well, that sounds right. I guess, I guess that's right. I need to send in my seed money to this televangelist so I can strike it rich. When there's no discipleship, the saints remain spiritual children, and they're vulnerable to false doctrine. And that is the unfortunate description of Christianity today. So why is, there, why is there heresy? Because there's no spiritual growth. There's no discipleship going on. So let me show you a couple of verses that we use consistently, kind of our, our hallmark verses for discipleship. 2 Timothy chapter 1, or 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things 
that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses. The same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And of course, you if you are part of our fellowship of churches, you were probably just quoting that along with me in your head. That's a very common verse for us. And we understand those four um, generations that are depicted there the, of Paul and Timothy and faithful men and others also. That it's to be something that is committed to Timothy and then Timothy commits those things to faithful men and then faithful men commit those faithful men or commit those things to others also. But what are the things? What are the things that were committed to Timothy? Well, that's a good question. I mean, there's a lot of things that could have been passed down. But when he talks about the things that were committed to them, it, if we backed up one chapter, just a few verses to find out what they are, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul tells Timothy, Hold fast the form of sound words, sound words, which thou hast heard of me. He said, The things that thou hast heard of me, the same commit thou to faithful men. What did he hear from Paul? He heard those sound words. It says, in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Then he says, that good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. He's talking about the words of God. Paul committed to Timothy, not some tradition, but the words of God. And then he said, those things that you heard of me, you commit those same things to faithful men. And then those faithful men will teach them to others also. We see the same thing with, with Paul and with Titus. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me, according to the commandment of God our Savior. Hear what he's saying? What's been committed to Timothy is the same thing that was committed to Titus. It was the word. It was the word of God. And that's what we need to commit. That's how we're going to edify each other. That's how we're going to bring spiritual children to maturity. Through teaching of the Word of God. In fact, um, in, we don't have this in your notes. If you want to try to write these down, you can. But when we find that, that statement, commit, because he told him, commit those things to faithful men. When the Bible uses the word commit, these are the things that it talks about committing. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 2, he says, commit the oracles of God. In 1 Corinthians 9, 17, it's the dispensation of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 5, 19, it's the word of reconciliation. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 7, it's the gospel. We saw Titus 1, 3, it's the word. In 1 Timothy 6, 20, it's the scriptures that are committed, and that's what we are to commit to others. And so in your notes, you have that, that little part of the power of God's word in discipleship. The importance of, it's you know, a lot of times when our culture, we use the word discipleship, we use the same uh, terminology as many other places and you may say it this way uh, that we we have the same vocabulary but a different dictionary when we say discipleship we mean one thing and other people hear it however they want and they talk about doing life together and certainly that's a part of discipleship Paul was with that that withness that Paul had with Timothy and traveling together and and living a life in front of him Jesus with his disciples but that's not the extent of it it's not just living life together. It's committing something to them. It's committing the words of God to them. And so the importance of that is in your notes there that the word of God is what will sanctify disciples. It's not just enough to, to spend time with them, hang out, be a big brother, be a, 
be a brother in the faith and, uh, and love them. But they're sanctified by the Word of God. And they're cleansed by the Word of God. The Word of God is what's going to grow spiritual babes. 1 Peter 2. And the Word will build them up. That's what we're talking about, edify. In Acts chapter 20. So this is why there was heresy in Corinth. Because there was no discipleship in Corinth. Remember, it was to Corinth that Paul said, you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. There was no discipleship going on. And so we need to understand in, in the call to edify. We're called to do that, to build each other up. You've got two points on this, letter A, that we're called to build up maturity, to take people from being a spiritual babe all the way through those stages of spiritual growth. And this has been mentioned in the evening sessions that, that uh, God's Word lays out seven stages of spiritual growth, from babe to little child to child to young man to father to aged to, el or to elder to aged. We see all seven of those listed, and, and we find that there are uh, correlated to that seven levels of discipleship, seven things that people need to add to their faith for each stage. Well, you come to faith in Christ, well, praise the Lord. You need to add to your faith. Right? He's, we need to grow in the Lord. That's what our text says in Ephesians chapter 2, again, verse 21, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord. We're to grow in the Lord, to, to not stay babies. Man, praise the Lord for babies. If you have a baby, it's a wonderful thing. I've got a two-year-old. I don't know what it is about boys, but uh, we had a, a girl, and she was so easy to potty train. It's like she, she, was, she was wanting to do it. As soon as we bought a potty chair, oh, I, I think I'd like to use that. We've got three potty chairs for my son. <laughs> He's just not that interested. He knows what he's doing, too. He'll go off by himself. You get close to him and say, go away. Go away. He wants his privacy. Just won't use that chair. Costing me a fortune in diapers. Babies are great, but you don't intend for them to stay babies. And God didn't design us to be remain babies. Thank the Lord, you guys. Everything you enjoy about your life is a, is a result of you growing up. Whether that's your marriage or whether that's your hobbies or your career, you didn't experience those as a baby. You didn't receive those as a baby. You received them from growing up, and certainly there needs to be growth in the church. And we talked uh, yesterday about how that that's both quantitative growth and qualitative growth. And so the, the church, the temple, grows in the Lord, and it should grow quantitatively and qualitatively. It should grow quantitatively as we add more stones to the building. But it should also grow qualitatively as we grow the stones that are already here. To be more developed, to be more mature. To, to come from being a baby, to grow to be a little child. And then to be a child. And then to be a young man, and a father, and an elder, and an aged. Let me, let me put on the, the screen 2 Peter chapter 1. Um, we'll talk about in the next session uh, the, the part of evangelism and growing qualita or quantitatively. But today we're talking about, in this section, we're talking about the quantitative, or the, sorry, excuse me, the qualitative growth, that discipleship growth. And um, our, our, uh, our fellowship of churches often use Second Peter chapter 1. It's a wonderful summary of how we need to add to our faith. You have faith in Christ? Praise the Lord. That's wonderful. You're, you come to faith, 
and you're born again, so you're born as a baby. But you don't need to stay that way. You need to traverse through the, the seven stages of spiritual growth by adding, in each, in each stage, adding something new to your faith. You're a baby, you have faith, praise the Lord. You need to add virtue so that you can be a little child. And you're a little child, well, praise the Lord. You need to add to that virtue knowledge so that you can become a child. And each step of the way, we have these, Second Peter chapter 1 describes and says, that, and beside this, giving all diligence. And listen, this is something that we're so passionate about. We hold our, our own discipleship conference every year. We invite all the Living Faith Fellowship churches to come, and we share, we've, we've together come up with and developed specific curriculum, not only for the first phase of personal discipleship or discipleship one, but also for subsequent stages, and we, man, we partner together for this LFBI thing to, because we're serious about training and helping people grow to maturity. But it takes diligence. It's going to take, it's, your pastors can want it for you all the time. They, they can sincerely desire for you to grow in your faith, but you have to desire that. Your, your pastor can't be diligent enough for you. He can try to perfect you, but you personally have to be diligent to add to your own faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance. And to temperance, patience. And to patience, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity. This past uh, discipleship conference, uh, Jay Shug from Huntsville spoke uh, in the foundations class and laid out those seven stages of spiritual growth and how they relate to the seven levels here that we're adding to our faith. And it's just a beautiful thing the way God works it out. And the people in this fellowship have worked hard to come up with a system and things to help you add those to your faith. But you've got to be diligent yourself. And we have to be diligent with others to grow them through discipleship, to grow them to maturity. All right, point B is we are called to build up ministry. To not just build up maturity, but also to build up ministry. Remember that 1 Timothy chapter 3, where he talks about the bishops, and he talks about the deacons, and we, we read verse 15, we're going to read it again. He says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Now listen to how he describes. Listen to who we are as the house of God. The pillar and ground of the truth. That's what he describes us as two things, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And we see both that vertical pillar and the horizontal ground. And I think some of this is in your notes. The pillar is the testimony of truth. Every time we find that in Scripture, it's always a testimony. The first time we see it is in Genesis chapter 19, when Lot's wife looks back. And what does she become? She becomes a pillar of salt, a testimony. You better obey the Lord. Genesis 28, we see Jacob, and he's, he's in Bethel. And you know, incidentally, the name Bethel means house of God. He's in Bethel, and he sets up a pillar. And it's a testimony to his commitment to follow and to follow the Lord. Exodus chapter 13, God leads Egypt, uh, Israel out of Egypt, and he does so by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. Man, praise the Lord. It's a testimony of what God is doing in his presence and his power. And here we are called to be a pillar of truth, a vertical testimony to the truth that uplifts and proclaims and reveals 
the truth of God, God's word. That's what the local church is called to do. Not just to build up to maturity, but also to everyone, to the lost world, to be a vertical testimony of the truth. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of that going along in the United States churches. People aren't uplifting the truth. They're apologizing for it. We're not revealing the truth. We're, we're just coming to come up with our own ideas. But God's designed us to be the pillar of truth. You know, we have churches, especially in, in my neck of the woods, uh, we are kind of the buckle of the Bible belt. And, um, man, we have churches everywhere. We, we recently had a missionary in from India, and he was looking past, hey, there's a church. Hey, hey, there's a church. You know, it was unique for him. Yeah, we have churches everywhere, but not a lot of truth. People go to those churches, and we have people who go consistently and, and faithfully month after month and sometimes week after week, and they hear sermons. But why are we so biblically illiterate? Why, when it comes to doctrine, are we so uninformed? Why is heresy spreading through our churches, and it's like wildfire that you just can't stop it? It's because we're not a pillar of truth. We're not revealing the truth for people. We're not proclaiming the truth. There's not a clear pillar of truth. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 16 is on the screen. It says, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Listen, as a Christian, you can run and you can labor. As a pastor, you can run and you can labor. But if you don't hold fast, if you don't hold forth the word of life, you might find yourself running in vain. And all the labor and all the time and all the prayer and energy that you put into ministry or into your family, if you don't hold forth the word of life, you might run in vain. So we're called to be the pillar of truth, but we're also called to be the ground of truth. And that's that horizontal direction, right? That's the horizontal plane. It's in ground, when we think about being the ground, what is ground? Well, it's a place. It's the place where truth is located. Oh, this is the ground of truth. That people ought to know, if you want to find truth, you can find it in this church. If I want to know what the truth is, I know where I can find it. It ought to be the place where people know when they come in the doors, what are they going to do there? They're going to preach the truth. They're going to be teaching the truth all the time. Not philosophy, not encouragement, not self-help. All those things, you know, encouragement's good. But let them know that this is the place of truth. That we don't compromise on the truth just to make more people find Jesus more attractive. Hold forth the truth. There are practical reasons why parachurch organizations exist. But there's also practical reasons why they get subverted by false doctrine. And one of the reasons is they're not the ground of truth. So we can't be surprised when error is prevalent. Church is the ground of truth. It's a place where truth is located, and ground is the place where the truth is cultivated. See, ground is soil, and it's where truth grows. And I know that's weird for us to hear, but that's what the Word of God does in the church and through the ministry of the local church. It grows. The Word of God grows. And I can't explain to you the full ramifications of what that means. But just listen to Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. It says that the Word of God increased. And I don't. I don't really understand. If they told me the number of believers increased, 
I would more fully understand what that means. But it says that the word of God increased. In Acts chapter 12 and verse 24, it says the word of God grew and multiplied. And if it said the number of disciples grew and multiplied, then I would understand more fully exactly how that happens and what that means. But we see that the truth of the word of God can grow and it can multiply. It even says in Acts chapter 19 and verse 20, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. And if you told me that that churches were going to mightily grow and that they would prevail, I would more fully understand what that means. But somehow, in God's way of doing things, the Word of God is a place that is intended to grow and to multiply and prevail. Where? And the ground of truth. Each one of those are specifically dealing with the ministry of the local church, whether that be the local church at Jerusalem or at Ephesus. Through the ministry of the local church, being the ground of truth, the truth grows. So let me talk to you quickly about the role of the pastor in, the, in this, uh, this building of the church. So each, in each of these metaphors, the pastor has a special role because he's a gift to the church. And what is it in this one? It, we're going to say he's the wise master builder. And I use those words because it's on Lego, the movie. Um, now, I use that because that's what he's called in 1 Corinthians. So if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians, we've, we've referenced these uh, verses a few times, but we need to dig a little bit deeper and a little bit farther into them. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, um, and when you get to verse 9, it's, it's going to be uh, very familiar. It says, For we are laborers together with God, ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me, Paul says, as a wise master builder, Paul saw himself, his identity within the building is that he is the wise master builder. And he says, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. Now, if, you, if we backed up a few verses, maybe you just want to glance up at those verses. Paul is talking about his role and the role of another man named Apollos. And, you know, Paul came by and he planted and Apollos watered, right? And now he's talking about the church being a building. And so he's saying, in the building, I planted and another, presumably Apollos, builded on it, on that foundation of Jesus Christ. And then he says, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. Paul says the church is a building. And he says the pastor is a builder. But I, I want you to, to recall something that we saw. This is important for us. In Matthew chapter 21, we read this, and I just kind of read over it. We didn't mention it. Matthew 21, 42 says, Jesus saith unto them, Did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. I, I just want you to know, just because a man is a pastor, has that title, has that position, does not mean he's a follower of Christ. And just because he has an esteemed position over a very large congregation, those builders were the religious leaders. Notably, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes led by the high priest, that council that condemned Jesus to death, that rejected him. 
Just because someone's in an esteemed position over a large congregation doesn't mean he's building the right way or even that he's building on the right foundation. So we can't just look around and say, oh, this church is doing great. Let's pick up what they're doing. Let's adopt their values or their DNA and let's take their practices. No, we have to look to God's word. It's the, it's the foundation. Because if we look at builders, we're going to get messed up. Not every builder is building on the right foundation. That's why he says, let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. And so there's a warning for pastors to take heed. We have, we have a solemn responsibility in how we build the building. Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and verse 18 says, By much slothfulness the building decayeth. What building is he talking about? He says, And through idleness of the hands the house droppeth through. That's who we are as a church. We're a building and we're a house. And pastors, if we get lazy, if we get slothful, that thing will decay and, and it'll drop through. But I want you to continue because that warning continues. Uh, look at verse, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 12. He, he goes into this uh, passage and, and you'll recognize it. If you're uh, in the discipleship ministries of your church or you've studied the the judgment seat of Christ, he says in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 3, And now if any man build upon this foundation, what was the foundation? It was the foundation of Jesus. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And if any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward, and if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. And so we, we've seen this before, and surely you have seen this passage and reference to the judgment seat of Christ, and that is true. And we often apply that to uh, individual believers and how we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Romans chapter 14 and verse 10 says, and it's verse 12 of Romans 14 says that we will each give an account of everything in our life. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says that in that, at the judgment seat of Christ, that the hidden counsels of our heart will be manifest, right? And 2 Corinthians 5 says that we'll receive the things done in our body, whether it's good or bad. So we'll, all Christians will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but I want you to notice that the specific context of 1 Corinthians 3 is dealing with pastors, builders. Paul said, I am a wise master builder, and another, Apollos, buildeth thereupon. Right? So the most direct application is to pastors. That you are the builder of those churches, and you will give an account for how you build that church. You must first make sure you're building it on the foundation of Jesus Christ. But then you'll give an account on what you used to build it, and how you built it. And he goes through a list of things, because everything's going to be tried by fire. And it, you got gold. You got silver, you got precious stones, you got wood, hay, you got stubble. Six things, and the first three, we've noticed this, I'm sure, before, that the first three things are, they survive the fire. You put gold, silver, precious stones in the fire, they survive it. In fact, they're refined. The last three things, wood, hay, and stubble, are burnt up. Doesn't mean they're evil, doesn't mean they're sin. They're just not eternal. They're not going to last the fire. Maybe they were the right things done with the wrong motives, I don't know. The hidden counsels of the heart will be revealed 
But we can identify what those are through Scripture. If you want to know how to build the house of God, God tells you what you're going to be rewarded for. If your things remain through the fire, if they endure the fire, you'll get a reward. And he also tells you what things are going to suffer loss and it can be burned up. And so, so that you don't labor in vain and run in vain, let's just take a look at what those things are. Gold is the gifts of worship. That's what you give a king. Gold is worship. And every time we find worship, the things in the temple or the things in heaven, they're, they're all gold. Why? Because that's worship. Your worship will endure the fire. And you'll get a reward for it. Silver. You make it out of silver. Well, what's silver? Psalms 12, 6 says, the word of God. They're as silver. And the worship of God, the word of God, those things will last the fire. And you'll get a reward for those things. Precious stones are the souls of men. We read that in 1 Timothy 2, 5. Or I'm sorry, I said 1 Timothy. It's 1 Peter 2, 5. They're the souls of men. And pastors, if you, if you build the house, if you build the church with worship, with the word of God, with the souls of men, if those are your emphasis, is that what you give your life to? Then you'll have a reward. And God knows how to give good rewards. I have no idea what it is. I don't think it's entered into our minds. I don't think we can imagine the things God has prepared for us. But he also gives us some things that are going to be burned up. And one of them is wood. That's not stones. That's wood. But we find wood referring to men. Specifically woods, crowds of men. Maybe even lost men. Listen, if if you build your church on the idea of packing it out with a whole bunch of people and not really trying to evangelize and disciple, but just let's get a big crowd. It's going to burn up. Hey, what's that? Proverbs 27, 24, and 25 says it's the riches of this world. Man, if you, if you build your church on all the riches of this world, whether that's for you personally to get rich or so that your organization has the biggest, nicest building and all, of, all the facilities and sound and everything it can offer, man, that stuff's going to burn up. There's nothing, you know, nothing wrong with sound systems. There's nothing wrong with buildings. I love them. I'm thankful for them. But if that's the intent, we've got to know that stuff's going to burn. And maybe it's a necessary tool, but it's not going to endure the fire. Stubble. And that's the wicked. It's stuff that's fit for fiery destruction. In Job chapter 21, verse 7 and verse 18, Malachi 4.1, stubble is the wicked. It's fit for destruction. And man, if you got wickedness, it's going to be burned up for sure. And, and this one uh, is specifically spoken to. We need to look at Isaiah 47. Let me do this quickly. Isaiah 47 Verses 13 and 14. It says, Thou art wearied in the multitude of thy counsels. Thou art wearied in the multitude of thy counsels. Let now the astrologers and the stargazers and monthly prognosticators stand up and save thee from these things that shall come upon thee. Behold, they shall be as stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There shall not be a coal to warm at, nor fire to sit before it. As he speaks about these other ways of finding truth, whether that's uh, astrologers or stargazers or prognosticators, other sources, other foundations that you could build that house upon, other sources of truth and direction, 
Those are going to be burnt up as stubble. It's wickedness. So take heed how you build your church. For believers, for sure, we need to each, we're each going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll each give an account for how we built our lives, but pastor specifically on how you built the church. So let's look at the Roman numeral three, what we're called to avoid. We're called to be a house of God. We're called to do edify that house, to build up, and we're called to avoid outsourcing, to relegate our responsibilities and building up that house to somebody else. Maybe we're too busy trying to grow the size of that crowd, or maybe we're too busy trying to build our Twitter platform. Whatever it is, one of the ways that we see this happen is so outsourcing discipleship. It's amazing to me when pastors say, I'm just too busy to do that. And that's our, that's our primary job, right? We saw the, the purpose of the pastors. Why did God give gifts of pastors? It's to perfect the saints. Man, if, what are you doing outsourcing the one job you got? I don't know. You know, the, the, uh, maybe the quintessential passage that speaks to the importance of the local church is Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. We read it earlier when he's talking about building his church. He says, And I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You, those two promises, if we just consider what those two promises are, one is that Jesus will build his church. Jesus never promised to build some parachurch organization. He didn't promise to build a, a Bible college or a seminary or a training center. Does God use them? Yes, he does. Praise the Lord that he does. But the reason why they exist is because pastors and churches have outsourced discipleship. We became too busy with our careers or with our congregation sizes or whatever it may be to make disciples and to train men and to prepare them for ministry. And so they had to go somewhere else to get trained. Now, maybe now some people choose to leave a genuine disciple-making church to go get trained somewhere they think there's a faster route for them. Or maybe they think it'll be better for them. They'll learn more. But for the most part, you know, we as church members need to understand where God has called training to happen. And that's within the local church. And we as pastors need to realize that's our job. Don't outsource it. Jesus promised to build his church. He designed it so that it would grow. We often get stuck in the, this carnal world of pragmatism of, of what works. Results-based, results-driven philosophy. What methods will work for growing my church? But Jesus has called us to be faithful and to edify the saints, to build the building. You, listen, pastors, we, we know this already. We don't have the capability to build the church, right? Even though we're called builders, we got no power to build. It's Jesus who's going to build his church. But he does that through pastors who are willing and obedient and faithful to perfect their saints, to take the word of God and commit it to faithful men. That's what he does. I mean, that's the essence of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Remember Paul and Apollos? He, Paul says, I planted and Apollos watered, but neither of us, one of us even matter. It's Jesus, it's the Lord who gives the increase. Well, praise the Lord. He's the one who's going to build his house. The second promise is that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Man, that's a beautiful promise. 
I want you to just consider for a second. In the last 2,000 years, all that Satan has thrown at the church. For 2,000 years, Satan, the gates of hell, have been attacking the church. And Jesus' promise is true. Here we are, 2,000 years later, and the church of God is still strong. Man, praise the Lord. Persecution, governmental persecution, people being imprisoned and burned, we don't see a whole lot of that in our country. It happens across the globe and throughout the ages. There's been social persecution to conform to the society and the culture that we're in. There's personal persecution from family and friends and religious persecution. Man, we've been, we've been attacked by every group, whether they're Hindus or Muslims or animists, whoever they are, Catholics, the church has been attacked. Still stand strong. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. That promise isn't given to anybody else except the church. Praise the Lord for his faithfulness. Think of all the false doctrine that Satan has thrown, the doctrines of devils that he has been openly attacking the church with for 2,000 years. Hey, maybe we see it working in a lo- him winning in a lot of churches, but we also see a lot of churches that still believe the word of God, still holding to the truth and the doctrines of God's word. Praise the Lord. The gates of hell will not prevail. You know, when we think about uh, all the, all the uh, counterfeits that Satan has thrown against the church in the last 2,000 years, whether it's some false religions who proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, governments who take up the banner of Christ's kingdom, universities taking up the banner of Christ, organizations taking up uh, the banner of Christ. Listen, many organizations throughout the last 2,000 years and denominations and councils and groups, they've fallen. But the church still prevails. The gates of hell have not prevailed against her. Let me give you number uh, letter B. I almost said it again. I almost said le- number B. Sorry. Letter B. Outsourcing or overarching authority. And I just want to hit this briefly because it deals with the building. But we talked a little bit about it yesterday. That external authorities like denominational rule or internal authorities like deacon rule, we see... Uh, authority in the wrong place. And it's important for us to understand, there's some things in your notes, that the localized leadership was in a local church. And that's evident from scriptures. And you have there the local church identity. You'll notice that there are a few churches listed. The church at Jerusalem, the church at Antioch, the church at Centria, the church at Corinth. These are all individual churches. It's not one big church, right? There are local churches that have their own specific unique identity, and they have their own specific there, in fact, there are, I think there are uh, 27 churches specifically listen, listed in the Bible. But there are uh, local church leaders for each of those local churches. In every church, we find local leadership, not some national leaders, not, not some kind of regional leadership, not some kind of global leadership, but local leadership. You have in your notes there, local leadership of the Church of Jerusalem explicitly appoint their own deacons and implicitly endor- ordain their own elders. The church at Antioch has distinct leadership, and all the others as well. You can reference yesterday's uh, notes on the fly. We see local church discipline, whether that's in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 5, or that's in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There were discipline handed out by the local congregations, not by some overarching uh, you know, national denomination who's going to come in and exercise discipline there. 
It was done by the local leadership. We see local church missionaries. Missionaries were sent out of a specific local church, Antioch, and they reported back to that specific local church. Local churches are to be autonomous, and we mentioned this, but I, it's worth mentioning again that God has designed churches to be self-supporting in the area of finances, to be self-governing in the area of leadership, and to be self-replicating in the area of reproduction and church planting. He's, we're all autonomous, but that, that doesn't mean we're isolated, right? Sometimes, you know, independent Baptists can swing to that side, you know? Instead of us being in uh, some denomination and us being controlled and our doctrines and beliefs and authority is, is handed down and is actually above us, we are autonomous, but we become isolated. And we can't get along with anybody. And we can't fellowship with anybody. And there's too much conflict all the time. Listen, and what we find in the New Testament, and this is in your notes, local churches were independent, but they were cooperative. And they had edifying relationships even between them. And there are some examples there. I'll leave that for you to, to look over. Uh, but I do want you to know that the churches are to work together. We are autonomous, but there should be a fellowship. And we can look and see how churches in the New Testament sent leaders to another church when they needed help. And sometimes they didn't need help, just they knew they were going through persecution, and somebody said, man, my heart is for them. I need to go be with them. I need to go pray with them. I need to go minister to them. I need to send gifts when they're poor and, they're, and they don't have any money. I need to send some money to them. There was cooperation between the churches. And I'm very thankful for this fellowship that we have that's autonomous in the sense that we support, our, each church supports itself, governs itself, and seeks to replicate itself. But there's a cooperative fellowship between our churches and don't miss how important that is if we want to be like new testament churches let's be like new testament churches let's get along that doesn't mean it's always going to be easy you know it's the extended family you know when you go home for christmas not me i get along great with my family but maybe other people you go and you're with your family and they start to get on your nerves you're used to being in your own house and having things your way and you know you don't have your seat to sit in, or maybe they come to your house and they're sitting in your seat. <laughs> People should know where the king of the castle sits. You know what I'm saying? But things get a little tense sometimes, right? It's good for them to come and it's good for them to go, right? I truly, I truly do love my extended family. But sometimes, and when churches fellowship together, we can expect some friction, just like we can expect within our local family our immediate families. But it's important for us to have that fellowship together. The bottom line is we are God's building. We're his house. We're his temple. So let's be holy and let's be building each other up so this temple can grow to be the habitation of God that he's designed us to be. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to take a 10-minute uh, break and then we'll come back. Lord, I love you. Thank you for the privilege of being your building, of being your temple. God, thank you for the, the honor that you bestow on us. And we are so unworthy of that. We're unworthy of your salvation. We're so unworthy of, of all the good that you do to us, but we thank you for it. And we ask you to continue your good work in us, in our individual churches, and in our collective fellowship together, as we partner together to edify and to send and to accomplish your mission. All for your name, all for your glory, all for your credit. Amen. Take 10 minutes and uh, we'll be back here.